Have you ever laid awake at night, just tossing and turning with troubling dreams? You know, as we come to Daniel chapter 2 today, we're going to see this is what was happening with King Nebuchadnezzar. His mind was filled with a dream that God was giving him. Now, next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at this dream in depth. And as we do so, we'll see it's a prophecy that points ahead to the coming kingdoms of the world. But before we get to the dream and its interpretation, what we're going to look at today is the interchange that leads up to it. And what we're going to see is there's a contrast between two men. One is one who knows God and knows that God can be trusted. And the other is a person who was trusting in the wealth and the power of the world. And what he finds is all the wealth and wisdom of the world would ultimately come up empty for him. So I invite you to look with me now in your Bible at Daniel chapter 2, where I want to begin reading verses 1 and 2. It says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in, and they stood before the king. Those of you who are parents know when your child has a nightmare, they'll sit up in bed screaming and they want mom and dad to come in and comfort them. Well, here we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And rather than just sitting up in his bed and calling for somebody to come and comfort him, he says, I need my counselors. I need those who can come in and tell me what this dream means. Now, notice there are four groups that are gathered. The magicians, these are not the kind who do tricks like we think of in our day. These were people who were the religious scribes and scholars. It's why the Hebrew word that's used here describes a pen or a stylus. These are the the religious scholars. Conjurers are those who claim to have the ability to, to talk with and contact the spirit world. Sorcerers were those who performed magic and spells, and the Chaldeans were a royal class of scientists and astronomers. These are the wise men. These are the magi that we see coming at the birth of Jesus. And as they're called in, Nebuchadnezzar tells him he has a dream. Now, in verses 1 and 2, you'll notice that it's the plural form of the word. Even though there's just one dream, it's been occurring over and over, which makes him all the more certain that this is a message from God. And it's why he calls in those who claim to speak to the gods to tell him what it means. Now, verses 3 and 4 tell us, The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Now, if you were here last week, or remember I told you that the book of Daniel is written in two languages. There's Hebrew and Aramaic, and starting here all the way through chapter 7 will be the Aramaic section. And what that tells us is what God is revealing here was not just for the Jews. It wasn't just in Hebrew, but it was in the diplomatic, in the language that the Gentiles, the leaders, and others in kingdoms like Babylon could understand. So God is revealing himself to the Gentiles as well. And the king says, what is the message? And they said, well, king, if you'll tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. Now, in verses 5 and 6, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your house will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Well, suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar's dream becomes their nightmare, doesn't it? They have a feast. 
or a famine scenario, they're told, listen, if you can tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will have more money, more riches, more honor than you have ever seen in your life. But if you can't deliver, then you're going to lose everything, including your life. Now, in verses 7 through 9, they answered a second time, and they said, let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Now, you'll remember in chapter 1, we saw Nebuchadnezzar has just been king for a few short years. It means he's inherited uh, the position and the power and all the trappings that come with it from his father, including this group of advisors. Now, it's clear that he doesn't trust them. He says, I know you guys uh, conspire together and just make things up. You say you can talk to the spirits, so instead of uh, faking it, show me that you can by telling me the actual dream. And then I know you're not just making up a meaning. And we see they're caught because it says the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. As I read this, I thought of what we find in the book of Exodus. If you've ever read through the book of Exodus, you know that when God was showing his power to the Egyptians as he was preparing to free his people from slavery, you'll remember he sent Moses in, and, and there was this battle taking place where Moses and the magicians and wise men and sorcerers of Egypt were going back and forth with miracles. And at first, whatever Moses was doing from the power of God that was giving him this ability, the magicians were able to, to counterfeit it. But eventually there came a point where they couldn't keep up with the power of the true God. And and ultimately they were unable to do what God was doing. And in Exodus 8.19 it says, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. They were confronted with the true God of heaven, Jehovah, Yahweh, the, the, the one true God. And they ultimately had to say, Listen, uh, Israel's God is the real deal. And here we see the Chaldeans come to the same point where they say in a literal interpretation of the Aramaic here is any God who can fulfill the king's request would be a God of a higher order. What they are saying here is this isn't a man-made idol like the ones we worship. This isn't the the made-up false pagan gods uh, that we serve. This isn't uh, a, a counterfeit God. They acknowledge that Israel's God is the real deal. You see, suddenly the Babylonian system is shown to be bankrupt just as it was with the Egyptians where they were proven to, to worship false gods. And when push comes to shove here, they confess, listen, our gods are counterfeit. And, and everything comes crashing down, not just for them, but also for Nebuchadnezzar himself. I want you to remember where Nebuchadnezzar is. He's, he's sitting in his plush bed in the palace. 
He's the ruler of the the strongest empire in the entire world at this time. He's wiped out Egypt. He's taken Judah captive. The Israelites are there on and on. And he's, he's the guy at the pinnacle of power. He's in the palace surrounded by the trappings of power and wealth. Standing before him are the wisest men of the world at that time. And, and yet with everything at his disposal, he finds all that the world offers him. Can't even buy him a single night of sleep. You know, reading this looks like what we're facing in our day, doesn't it? How many who are sitting here today or or, or listening online right now have have found that all the things that the world offered have suddenly come crashing down? The position you used to have where you thought you had all this power, the wealth that was at your disposal, all all the things that, that are in place in society, Uh, Everything that people have been trusting in where they thought they had control over have come crashing down. It's the truth of Matthew chapter 7 being lived out before us where Matthew chapter 7 says that when a person builds their house on the shifting sands of the world that when the wind and the waves come as the storms crash against the house, it will collapse. But it says if you built your foundation on the rock, a foundation of faith in the true God, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is when the wind and the waves come, uh, your house will stand. And here for Nebuchadnezzar, he has all the wealth and wisdom of the world, but it's sandy soil. The counterfeited gods of the world can do nothing for him. And the whole system comes crashing down. Back in chapter 1, you'll remember when Daniel and his three young friends were carried to captivity in Babylon. One of the things they did was they tried to, to wipe out their, their past faith in following the true God. They assimilated them into Babylon. One of the things they did was they changed their names. And their names before had pointed to the true God, that Jehovah was the one who would, would take care of them. He was the one who watched over them. And here you see two of the names, Shadrach and Meshach, the Babylonian names. Hananiah, which had been the Jewish name, meant Jehovah has been gracious, but now his name was changed to Shadrach, command of Aku. Do you remember who Aku was? The Babylonian moon god. Mishael was the one who worshipped who is he that is God, the true God, and instead his name was changed to who is what Aku is. Now why do I point these names out to you? Remember, this is the middle of the night. The Babylonian moon god, Aku, was said to rule the night. This was the pinnacle of where he was supposed to be uh, able to manifest his power. And at this moment, Aku was powerless. He's fake. He's counterfeit. It's not until later in this chapter when the one true God, Yahweh, is going to be brought into the picture that Nebuchadnezzar will get the help he needs. But before that happens, what God is doing here is he's bringing the king to the point of seeing all that the world is offering is a cheap counterfeit. Have you found that yet in your own life? As you look at all that's happening in the world, all the uncertainty, all the unrest, all the things that people had put their faith and trust in, all the things that people were counting on for security. We have riots. We have economic collapse. We, we have uh, people who have been looking to healthcare experts who can't figure out from one day to the next what is right or wrong and how to treat this or how to deal with this coronavirus that we've been dealing with. And all that the, the people in the world were, were trusting in, it's been found to be shifting sands that are collapsing. Those who said, I'm the captain of my own destiny, have found themselves shipwrecked across the rocks. They have no control. And what they need is the foundation of the true rock, 
Jesus Christ, to put their faith in God and his word. And as we're talking about God and his word in the world, this is what we need. But there's been this constant attack on God and his word. There's been this, this attempt to erode it, to break it down, to say that it can't be trusted. One example of that is, is seen in Harvard University. Now, I don't know what you think of Harvard, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you this about Harvard. It is the oldest educational institution of higher learning in our country. It was founded before our country existed. 384 years ago, Harvard University was founded. And Harvard is named after Pastor John Harvard. Here's a picture of a statue of him. He gave his library and estate to the school in 1638. And if you go to Harvard University and you go in front of University Hall, that's where you'll find this, this statue of Pastor Harvard. And there, open on his lap, is a Bible. Now, something that a lot of people don't notice about the statue, where you see that arrow is there are a couple of other books that are sitting under the chair that are closed. And they're there to represent the limitations of human wisdom and knowledge versus the open Bible. It's also seen in the seal. If you look at the seal of Harvard University, this is a picture of the original seal. Now, I'm going to show you a picture in a moment where you're going to see what's been changed. But where that arrow is pointing are to two books. You'll notice there are three books. And on the books is the Latin word veritas, which means truth. And the two open books represent the Old and the New Testament, showing uh, the wisdom that God reveals for us. And if you look at that third book on the bottom, that's the spine of the book because the book is actually turned face down. Again, to represent the limitations of human knowledge and wisdom. But if you look at the current seal of Harvard, you'll notice that all three books are face up. They've removed this pointing to the limitation of the world and its wisdom and say, no, no, man has unlimited potential. They've dismissed and marginalized God. And this isn't just in the seal, it's in the wording on the seal. Now, veritas has been there from the very beginning. That's the Latin word for truth. But in the, in the early seal of Harvard in 1643, there were these, those, those books that I, I showed you. And then they also had the word in 1650, the Latin motto included in Christia Glorium, which means for the glory of Christ. That was in the 1650. Now, the slide you see up there is from 1843 to 1847, where the, the motto was changed to uh, Christo Ecclesia, which means for Christ and in the church. In other words, truth comes from God and his word. Truth comes for the glory of God to man. Truth is from Christ and for the church, which is to be the salt and light in the world. But now God is no longer mentioned. We're to decide what our own truth is. How many people have you heard in our day that talk about, I'm going to speak my truth, and my truth overrides any other truth, where there is a standard? Now, it's not just Harvard. If you go up the road here to Austin, Texas, there's another university called the University of Texas. And it's where I went to school. This is where the Aggies usually hiss, but there's not as many of them here today. There they are. There's a few of them among us. So I went to this little Christian college up the road called the University of Texas, right? No, it's not a Christian school. But right there, right on the front of the main tower, you see this word truth. Now, it's part of a larger statement as you look at the tower, what it says is, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But you'll notice there's no inscription where the citation of the source is. 
That comes from John 8.32. John 8.32 in our Bibles, it says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And yet the source is missing because God has been removed. He's been marginalized. And you may say, well, Roger, it's not there because, you know, the architectural thing, they didn't have room for the inscription. If you walk around that main tower, there are other inscriptions, and every one of them attributes the source to the philosopher, to the place it came from, various things. But here the Bible has been removed because, again, you get to make up what is your own truth. The foundation is not God. The foundation is not God and his word, whether it's UT, Harvard, the text we're looking at today, all throughout history, God has been marginalized and pushed out. And then the day comes where we ultimately find just how bankrupt our self-sufficiency and systems really are. As you look at your life today, what are you trusting in? What is your foundation? Is it the rock? Of Jesus Christ? Is it God and His Word? Or are you the captain of your own destiny? Is your confidence in the things of the world? Is it is it wealth? Uh, is it health? Things that can disappear in a moment? Are you trusting in wisdom that the world offers or or your own quick wit? What is it that you're depending on? Because all of these things are going to come up short one day if you haven't already found that. And here Nebuchadnezzar finds that. He has the best and the brightest minds of the world to help him. He had more material possessions than you can imagine. But what did it do for him? He's at the top. He's at the pinnacle of power. He's at the top of the heap in terms of wealth, and and yet he lacked peace. He laid awake at night worrying about what the future holds. It's not until verse 29 when Daniel points him to the one true God that that peace will come. You know, one of the, the constant chants we hear in our day is no justice, no peace, right? No justice, no peace. If the world would turn to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, there would be peace in our day. And there is a day coming when the Bible makes clear that God will bring perfect justice. All the wrongs of the world will be righted. But it comes through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. As we look at verses 12 through 13, it tells us the king became indignant and very furious. And he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now in chapter 1, remember Daniel and his friends had been brought as 15-year-olds, as captives into the land of Shinar there in Babylon. These, these guys are new to the group. They're not even in the king's bedroom. And yet what the king says is, you've been trained under the system of these people who are fakers, and I think you've already been corrupted and taught to lie to me as well. So he says, I'm going to make a clean sweep. I'm just going to wipe everybody out. And so uh, as they come for Daniel, verses 14 through 16 tell us, and Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch the captain of the king's bodyguard who had come forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Daniel's asleep in his own bed. He's woken up. He's told you're going to lose your head. And, and Daniel goes, what is going on? And it says, and Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now, I want you to think about the courage it took here. 
Daniel is maybe around 20 years old at this time. He's woken up. He's told the king is furious. He wants everybody dead. And, and you might think, well, the best thing to do is just kind of lay low at this moment, right? Don't talk about it. Just let the king settle and, and, and he'll change his mind. But Daniel says, uh, let me come in to see the king. And then he asks for the very thing that the king said he wouldn't give, which is more time to come up with the interpretation. And rather than being killed on the spot, God again grants Daniel favor with the king. It says, then Daniel went to his house and he informed his friends. And and here we see the Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, this word that is translated as friends, it has the meaning of to tie a knot or to join together. You'll remember last week we saw that the the Hebrew word that meant to resolve literally described the making of a rope where you weave fibers together. And then we talked about Ecclesiastes where you add more and more cords in and it it makes this rope stronger. And, And here it further illustrates this where we're told that Daniel brings along friends who can stand with him in this time of need or in this case kneel with him and pray and ask for God's mercy and answer. And as they pray, it's not to the false gods of Babylon. They go to Jehovah, addressing him as the God of heaven. And this is important because in that day, the belief was that gods could only function within a geographic area, wherever they were at. And remember, Jehovah was supposed to be the God of Judah back in Israel. Now they're over here in Babylon. And so the Babylonians would say, well, that God is powerless here in our land. But what Daniel and his friends are pointing to is the truth that the true God of heaven is not limited to one place. He is one who is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And so what they say is we are praying to the true God of heaven who is everywhere. And whatever it is you're facing in this day, you need to know that God is with you wherever you are, whatever situation, wherever it is you find you yourself, you can turn to the true God and pray. And as they do, notice it's not one of those bargaining type of prayers, right, that we're good at. God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. God, if you'll honor us and give us the answer, whatever wealth and and honor we get, we'll give to you. They're not bargaining with God. Instead, they come to him based upon his character. They call for him to show compassion, or some translations say mercy. And this is how we come to God. When we approach God in prayer, remember it's through the relationship that we have because of his son, Jesus Christ, who died to to pay the penalty of death on the cross. And we're told that when we come to faith in Christ, we are made a part of the family of God. And it's why Jesus told the disciples, when you pray, say, our father, daddy, come based on this personal relationship. And this is what God offers to us. They come based upon his merit uh, and his mercy of Christ, not their own. They don't say, God, we're following you, we're serving you, we're standing for you in this pagan system. They say, God, we have no standing before you except based upon your mercy. And it's the same for us. Jesus is the one who paid the penalty of death for us. Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we come to God, it is based upon his mercy, not our merit. 
And as they ask for God's great mercy here, we see in verses 19 through 23 that he responds with the answer they were praying for. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what, it, what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God, my father, I give thanks and praise for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee. For thou hast made known to us the king's matter. You know, as we talk about prayer, we've, we've seen many ways that we're to pray. And one of the things that I've given you in the past is an acronym you can follow, ACTS, A-C-T-S. A stands for adoration. We come before God, we, we worship him. We don't just rush into his presence. C, we confess our sins coming with clean hands and hearts. And T stands for thanksgiving before we get to the S of supplication. Here we see Daniel remembering to thank God, to praise him for this great answer he's given. Now, as he's doing that, remember what's happening. Daniel has been told, you're about to be killed. Your friends are being arrested. They are about to be killed. The other wise men have already been thrown in jail. They're awaiting their execution. People's lives are on the line. And Daniel doesn't just stand up and say, oh, I got the answer and run into the king. Instead, he says, thank you, God. It's not a quick generic thanks, but what he does is he's very specific. God, thank you for the answer to this prayer. And he includes the attributes of God connected. He says, God, you are in control over time. You are the one who sets up and takes down kings and kingdoms. These are the things we're going to see next week that this dream was about. But first, the dream has to be revealed to the king. So verses 24 through 26 tell us, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence, and he spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. I don't want to linger too long here because I want to stick with the, the story, but I, I, I want you to notice Ariok does a little bit of self-promotion here, doesn't he? Nebuchadnezzar, I found the guy. Remember this when you are passing out honor and promotions and things, right? It was Daniel who came to Ariok, right? He says, hey, listen, I can do this. But as I'm using this word I a lot, notice how Daniel speaks to the king. We're not going to see I did this. He gives all the credit to God. Verse 26 says, Then the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? And, and Daniel's answer is, No, I can't. You can picture Ariok over there in the corner who just said, hey, king, I solved the problem. And he's that's not what you told me. But this is what Daniel says. No, I can't. 
just as none of the wise men, conjurers, Babylonians, diviners can. As you look at verse 27, he goes through all the branches of Babylonian wisdom. He says, listen, king, I want you to understand crystal clear that there is nothing in this world that can give you what you are looking for. But then he says in verses 28 through 30, there is a place you can go, which is to the one true God. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And then in verses 31 through 45, Daniel reveals the dream and its meaning. Now you can go home and read the dream if you want, but this is what we're going to come back and talk about next week. So we're going to kind of leave that cliffhanger for a moment. But as we look at this dream, as you read it, And as you're going to see next week as we unpack the interpretation, it is mind-blowing. And I don't say that in in a flippant way. When we look at the detail that was revealed through Daniel, it is truly amazing to see all that is revealed. In fact, it is so amazing that critics of the scriptures over the years have said the book of Daniel was not written when it was when Daniel was in captivity. It had to have been written hundreds and hundreds of years later after these historical events took place because the prophecy is so specific, so detailed, so accurate, they say it's impossible for this thing to have been revealed. Well, it's impossible with man, but we're talking about God. We're talking about the true God who is the one who is in control of history, the one who indeed sets up and takes down kings, the one who knows everything, the beginning from the end. And that's a truth that applies to us on a personal level, not just because we live in the world where these things happen and we're affected by it, but it's a truth that applies to us today because it tells us that wherever you are and whatever it is you're facing, God knows you and God cares about you. Think of all we've seen with Daniel and his friends throughout the scripture just so far in the first two chapters. Daniel and his friends were carried away to this foreign land as captives, and yet God was with them and he took care of them as they took their stand about what they would eat and what they would do. Then he was with them when their lives were on the line like we've seen today. He was with them when there was a temptation to try to seize and take credit that wasn't for them to take like Arioch did back in verse 25 where he said, I'm the guy responsible. In each instance, Daniel turned it over to God. He trusted him to take care of what he was facing. And as he does in this instance, I want to jump ahead to verses 48 through 49 and look at what happens as Daniel turns to and trusts God in the midst of this. It says at the end of the chapter in verses 48 through 49, then the king promoted Daniel. And he gave him many great gifts, and he made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. In the good and the bad, God proved himself faithful for Daniel every single time. What are you trusting in today? Is it the stuff of the world? 
the crumbling sand, the, the fake foundation that will fail you in the times of trial and storm? Or are you trusting in the true God as Daniel and his friends did? As you think about your life this morning, I want you to think about what you're dealing with. You know, it could be something good. It could be like Daniel. You've, you've been given a place of honor. You've been given a promotion at work. You've been rewarded for something during this time and you've received a bonus. Are, are, are you grabbing all the glory for yourself? Or are you giving God the credit that is due? Daniel not only gave God the credit, but notice that he raised up his three friends to stand with him in the new administration. He shared the glory with others. He said, not only do I need trusted people to surround me as I'm going to be governing, but he said, I need people who know and and love God and I can stand with them, that cord of three strands again. Do you share glory and credit with others or do you grab it all for yourself? If God has given you bonuses or other things, do you share with him in, in those things? You know, God doesn't need those things from us. It's just a way of acknowledging who he is and what he's done. Now, maybe you find yourself on the other end of the scale this morning. You're facing a crisis. You're out of work. There's a health scare in your family. And you're saying, Roger, I'm scared. Where do I turn? Who do I trust? And the answer is you turn to God. You give what you're facing to him and you let him carry it. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us to be anxious for nothing, for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it says, as we give these things to God, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're struggling and you're anxious and you're fearful, take it to God in prayer. Give it to him. He is the God of history. He's the God who knows tomorrow from today. He's the God who controls what will happen in in times yet to come, just as he has in the times past. And so we know that God is one that we can trust, and we can take whatever it is we're facing to him today. So will you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer and do that this morning? Lord God, as we come to you, Some of us are like Nebuchadnezzar. We're tossing and turning with nightmare scenarios in our our minds or in our life. Father, it may be that we're like Daniel and his friends who were facing even a loss of life if you didn't come through. And yet we know, God, that you will come through. We know, God, that you are one who can be trusted. You are the Lord of life. You hold the key to peace in our future. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to find rest in you today. Would you help us, God, to be those who place our faith and trust in the firm foundation, the rock of Jesus Christ? Lord God, we trust you to take care of us when our life on this earth is over. We know that you have promised us the gift of eternal life, and we believe that as Christians, when we die, we'll go to live with you in heaven forever. And we look forward to that day. And yet, God, as those who trust you for all eternity, Sometimes we struggle to trust you for today or tomorrow. And so would you help us, God, just to trust you, to know that you can indeed handle it. And God, for those of us who know you, would you help us to share the good news about your son, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, with a world who desperately needs to know the Prince of Peace. Would you help us, God, to be messengers 
of the story of the gospel of grace, messengers of the one that we can hold on to and trust in these troubling times. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.